Chances are, you don't know her. She was born as Anna May Bullock on November 26, 1939, in Brownsville, Tennessee. She was the youngest daughter of Floyd Richard Bullock and his wife, Zelma Priscilla. The family lived in the nearby rural, unincorporated community of Nutbush, Tennessee, where her father worked as an overseer of the sharecroppers at Poindexter Farm on Highway 180. She later recalled picking cotton with her family at an early age. This woman was practically unstoppable, and you probably know her or have heard of her as Tina Turner. She came from humble rural roots, started singing around her 18th birthday, and skyrocketed to the top of the charts. She was married to Ike Turner, who was also in the music industry, but she lost everything when she left him, clawed her way back, performed all the way through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That was my generation. And uh, kept performing even after bouts with sickness and cancer and several strokes. She was a strong person. We can only assume she decided to go on her own terms. She died last May uh, the 28th. For our purposes, the financial dimensions of her death are what matter. She did just about everything right. She moved to Switzerland, became a naturalized citizen, and that meant that she was able to pass her estate to her heirs, get this, tax-free. And it was an extraordinary estate, at least $250 million. It's really that simple. Her widower was entitled to half. Her surviving kids are collectively entitled to the other half under Swiss law. Her German husband, also a Swiss citizen, ironically named, get this, Bach. Erwin Bach was a record producer. Unless any of them signed a contract relinquishing those rights, that's how the estate would be distributed. Zurich doesn't take a cut. And when you're looking at $250 million in real estate and other assets, that's a big deal. After all, if she had stayed in America, her husband would still get his deductions and his share, but the kids would have had to pay 40% on just about everything in their share. Tina Turner said she wanted to move to Switzerland just to have a normal life. Well, she spent most of her life not being normal, so I suppose we can give her that. The 22nd chapter of Matthew is well represented today in the Propers. Back on Trinity 18, several weeks ago, you heard the last verses of this chapter where Jesus challenges his critics to articulate how David's son can also be David's Lord. That response, however, was the final exchange and a much longer back and forth that has been going on in Matthew for about two chapters. Three weeks ago on Trinity 20, you heard the first part of the present chapter in which Jesus likened the kingdom of God to a man who had a wedding party for his son, but the folks who were invited refused to show up. In the context, it's very clear who the son is. It's Jesus, and the folks who were invited 
and refused to show up were the Jews, and the party giving the celebration is God the Father. Those who by all rights should have been in attendance refused. They were obviously the Pharisees, so the invitation went out more broadly to other people whom we would identify in this parable as the Gentiles. And all of this is very provocative. And if Jesus himself were not a Jew, in a different context, this would clearly be speech labeled anti-Semitic. It's that sharp. And the Jewish leadership understood it was that sharp. Whatever Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God, he's articulating the unthinkable message that the Jews are excluded from the desires, ends, and goals of their own faith. And in short, they are losing their own story. Pause for a moment to reflect on how radical a posture this is for Jesus. There are many, including some of us, who want to perceive and reduce Jesus, or at least think about Jesus most of the time as something like a stuffed animal to a small child, a comfort toy. The fact is that Jesus was at times scathing and clearly on a path to have a head-on collision with the Jewish authority. We know how it ends. The rift is so bad, and each side knows that it's bad that the two positions could not coexist with one another. And Jesus, on his part, for a while could be dismissed, perhaps managed out, but the fact that he miraculously healed, fed, and exorcised nearly everyone he met in his presence over the space of three years meant that he, in the end he could not be ignored. Jesus would be killed by these authorities, not because he was nice. What a tragedy that would be. His popularity and notoriety was subversive to the Jewish state as it was then organized, and the Jewish state would eventually have to respond accordingly. In the end, the only option they had was to remove him, which they accomplished just a few days after the exchange in this gospel story. Today on Trinity Trinity 23, we have the third proper included in as many weeks, and it's the show me a coin story. You know the story. It's not only familiar, but it's the first of three trick questions successively put to Jesus by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Then the Sadducees put a second question, and finally there is a member of the scribal class, a Jewish lawyer. The Sadducees' second question is intractable, It's a question about the supposed resurrection, and remember that the Sadducees were not carrying anything for the Pharisees. They didn't get along. The Sadducees were the religious liberals, the progressives. The Pharisees were very orthodox traditionalists. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but nevertheless, they bring a question about a supposed resurrection to Jesus asking about a woman who has seven husbands in succession, all of whom die, who does she belong to in the resurrection? Finally, there's a lawyer who wants to trick Jesus into denigrating the Torah by improperly ranking the commandments in a way that religious lawyers disagree with, and so on. Three questions, all tricky, all brought with malice. So Matthew wants you to see the alignment of groups that were otherwise suspicious of each other, Pharisees and Herodians, Traditional observant Jews joining forces with quasi-Jewish political class, 
that was in collaboration with the Romans. You'll remember that at the trial, a few days later, Jesus would be sent from Pilate to Herod, who is essentially an Edomite, a half-Jew, for which the Pharisees had nothing to do, unless it was to unite against Jesus. Progressive Sadducees, who have little interest in the Pharisees' hyper-Orthodox traditionalism, come together in this story to present their question. That's the context for the questions, the first of which is our gospel lesson today. It is posed with malice, along with the next two, with only one design and one outcome in mind. The questions are meant to expose the rift between the parties, the the expanse of the divide, and if possible, to provide occasion for Jesus to entrap himself in a way that would be actionable on the part of his enemies. What ends up happening is that in all three cases, Jesus exposes the malice, exposes the hypocrisy, and craftily threads the needle of truth in such a way as to defeat the false dilemmas posed by each of the questions. Then he responds with his own trick question, the one you heard several weeks ago. How can David, in the book of Psalms, call his son, his messianic offspring, his Lord? How can Jesus be the son of David, which he certainly was, and which Matthew demonstrated in his genealogy at the beginning of his gospel, and yet also be given the superior title of Lord? Either David is wrong and Jesus is not Lord, that's bad for David, or David is right and Jesus is Lord. But either answer is bad for the Pharisees. This is the last major exchange Jesus has with his enemies, and in a few days after the exchange, he is arrested and turned over for execution. Now, we keep all of this in mind as we approach the gospel lesson and the epistle this morning. We know what is going on, and we know why it is going on, but in the midst of that, Jesus accomplishes something else. He makes a deeper statement worthy of our reflection, and the epistle lesson is joined here in the propers to offer deeper commentary. The question is regarding taxes. Do we pay them to Rome or not? Jesus Jesus calls for a coin, which the Pharisees are happy to supply. And Jesus asks them to identify the image on the front, famously quipping that we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We live and move in Caesar's jurisdiction. There are certain goods and services that Caesar gives us. It's only right that we pay our share and we give back to Caesar what is rightfully due to him. But then he adds an answer that the Jews are not looking for and certainly not expecting. Give to God the things that are God's. The unspoken premise, which surely the Jews couldn't miss, was simply this. If the coin bears Caesar's image and pertains to him, whose image do you bear? And what is the rendering appropriate to that image? It's clear the image of God is placed upon man, but which the Jews claimed bore and expressed in a special way before the world. But that image was not prompting the appropriate response in God's own people. In short, Jesus is saying that you're not living out the demands of being an image bearer of God. Give to God the things that are God's, which in this case means not money, but yourself. The short takeaway is this, that we are situated in a given political context from which we benefit even in an oppressive regime, and ours by the world standards and history is not terribly oppressive at present. 
Maybe it'll get that way, but we live still in one of the greatest, freest countries in the world. Lots that is wrong, but we enjoy a life that is enviable in the history of the world. And there are reasonable demands that are placed upon us. I don't like paying taxes any more than you do. I think the government takes too much, but it is my duty under God to pay them anyway. So together, the lessons today point us to a dual existence. Jesus maintains that we have duties in the earthly political sphere, but he implies that we have obligations in another sphere. Paul makes this explicit in the epistle that rides in tandem in your prayer book today. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it on my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's the text just a few verses before what's printed in your pew sheet. He goes on, Let those of us who are mature... Think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now your text. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We know who he has in mind the fellow travelers of the very Jews who confronted Jesus with malice in their tricky questions. They're still around. Paul offers us now a play on words. He says, if you are mature, think this way. He uses the same word to to describe his enemies. Their end, their telos, that is their... the end or fruit, the mature expression of where they are going is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Let those of us who are mature, that is, having approached our highest end and purpose, as opposed to Paul's assessment of his persecutors, the Jews, who have also reached their end, their lowest, their lowest end and purpose, destruction and shame. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here it is. We at once occupy an earthly sphere. It's important, and it entails duties. At the same time, we participate in a company of saints, a community of faith which is sourced in heaven, And this word carries the idea, not only heaven as a place or a jurisdiction, but the word here, our conversation, our lifestyle, our citizenship. None of these actually by themselves hit the mark. What Paul is really saying here, to the point, is that our living, the way we live as a member of this jurisdiction, this way that we live, is a way that should be transformed by the realities of the risen Lord. Membership in this polis, or this city, the jurisdiction, is contrasted with a kind of Judaism that had become an exercise in the great sin of pride and hypocrisy while creating an unhealthy fixation on managing and indulging in the physicality of their flesh, their appetites, and their own shame, all the while appearing to be intensely religious 
devout, and observant. If you want to participate in that, as the image bearer of God, know that the very image of the resurrected Christ is the paradigm for our physical existence. It is the thing that we are becoming. It is the thing which will ultimately be the full mature expression of who we were meant to be as human beings. Now be sure of this. Paul is not denigrating the body. No, on the other hand, he's saying that the body you occupy right now is in fact transformed. It's not to be despised, it is to be glorified. But he points out that the jurisdiction of which we are a part not only entails the transformation of our behavior, it will literally transform the physicality of our being such that by comparison, the bodies we now possess appear to be, in the old King James Version, vile, that's a little bit strident, but by comparison to what we may become, Yes, we could use that word, a softer word, which would be equally appropriate, would be humble. Yes, our earthly existence in comparison with that for which we are destined is humble, no matter how glorious it may appear or how much you may happen to enjoy your current estate. So Paul exhorts those who would be mature those who would achieve their highest intended outcome by God himself, their highest designed goal and end. If you would grow up into maturity, the moral obligations that entail must match that and be present in your life. And if we were to hopscotch through the book of Philippians, this warm letter to people who had formed the church at Philippi, starting with the jailer from the book of Acts, Paul rehearses a short list throughout this letter, and I'll just read a few of them to you. I'll just reel them off, because all of these are predicated upon the reality of occupying two jurisdictions. One is on earth, and we have duties to demonstrate to our brothers and sisters and to the world. That is what the Jews had forgotten. 127. I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Verse 28, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer. So get ready. Suffering will be part of your life. Paul wants you to be of one mind with the person sitting next to you. 2-1, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's on a theme here having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look at the person next to you. Be in the same mind with them. How would we do that best? Well, here's what it takes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look at the person next to you and admit to yourself that they're more important than you. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Look at the person next to you and ask yourself, I wonder what would be in their best interest and how I might serve that. This is the way we are to live, and it requires a transformation in your thinking to school yourself to be, to be this way. But if we achieve that, if we achieve that kind of maturity, what kind of congregation would we be and how irresistibly magnetic would it be to everyone else? 
What does maturity look like? Being able to maintain a oneness of mind considering others more significant than ourselves, well, that would be something. That would be a full expression of the image of God because Christ himself was the epitome of that. Christ himself humbled himself, though being God, took the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, and being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself even to the death on a cross. 2.14, here's one. What does it look like to be mature? Bearing the image of God, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look at the person next to you and make up your mind not to argue with them. Look at yourself and determine that you will not complain about where you are situated in life. 4.1, if you didn't hear it before, here it is for the third time, agree with one another. And in the greatest call-out in all of the Bible, Paul then says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche, <laughs> two women. We, the only thing we know about these women is that they did not get along. How would you like to be one of them forever, forever memorialized in the Scripture? <laughs> for all the world to see before God and the world, you are remembered for one thing from the first century forward into the millennia. You are remembered for complaining and arguing with one another. Folks, it's your choice. We can remember you for that. Or you can look at the person next to you and make a different decision. He softens it and says, they did labor both of them together with me side by side in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Their names are in the book of life. Let's all get along. Let's determine that we're going to do that. He keeps going, chapter 4, be occupied with noble considerations. This is one of the most beautiful uh, scriptures in the New Testament. It's familiar to you, and I'll leave you with this. Beloved, if you want to know what maturity looks like, it looks like this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence there is anything worthy of praise think on these things amen